everybody. It's Wayne with Mark and Areed, and we are so excited that you've come to watch the Eat Community Podcast. We know you're going to enjoy it. We actually did it live originally on our Eat Community webinar series, which we also invite you to come to, but you will love this podcast that you're going to be listening to right now. Well, we are started now, so very cool. Um, hi, everybody. Wayne from northern Colorado in a snowstorm, and uh, and the same maybe for uh, for Zach and uh, and Abner. You guys, you said you were snowed in. Is that previous snow, or are you getting more snow today? We uh, we got a few inches this past week, and then uh, our weekend, and we got another probably four to six inches last night. So we're kind of in the thick of it right now, but should start to clear up in the next few days. All right. Um, and so let's talk about your little bit of your history. So you're about 30 miles from Wichita Falls in Oklahoma. Um, maybe for each of you individually, just take a few minutes and take us back um, to childhood days and, and take us through to where you met and, and then what, what is, got to where you're at now. Sure. Well, um, I'm Casey, by the way, and this is my husband, Zach, and I will start off on that question. I was raised here in Walters, Oklahoma, where we currently live and farm. Um, my family, I'm a fifth generation farmer and rancher here in Walters, and so my family, they grow wheat, cotton, soybeans, they dabble, and then they, they run a bunch of cattle. Um, they do things a little bit differently than we do, but they've been very, very gracious to us and letting us sort of experiment with these new ways of farming and food production. Um, I moved to California for college and I stayed in California for about a decade and never really planned on returning to the farm. Um, I was still very passionate about food production. I most recently was working at Fairtrade Certified. So if you're familiar with the Fairtrade logo, um, I was working with sustainable supply chains from around the world, um, as well as at some other nonprofits, um, which is how Zach and I connected. Actually, we were both working for nonprofits based in Uganda. Um, so we, we connected there. And even when we got married, it still wasn't our plan to farm. Uh, but my family had a fixer-upper house here on their property, and so we thought it'd be a fun project to do. And then I ended up getting sick with a very rare autoimmune disease. Um, and that sort of led us down this track of really looking at what we're putting in our bodies, where our food comes from, not only where it comes from, but how it's produced. Um, and so that's actually why we started raising livestock was just to feed ourselves because we wanted to raise as clean meat as possible. Um, and so now that's kind of spiraled into this whole other organism that we'll get into later, but I'll let Zach share a bit of his history first. So I, um, Go for it, Zach. my parents moved to Jinja, Uganda in 1994 when I was about 10 months old. Uh, so I grew up in Eastern Africa, Uganda, right on the Nile river and uh, like Victoria for the first seven years of my life. And then we moved back to Portland, Oregon and, uh, 
basically the story from there is I'm a complete city slicker who has no experience or idea what he's doing on the farm. So my first real time out on the farm uh, was when I came to meet Casey's parents uh, and spent some time out here with her family. And they asked if I wanted to work cattle with them. And I had never even been within 20 feet of really a cow. And so it was just a, it was a jarring experience, but there was something really um, powerful about the fact that this family, the Shirley family that I married into has been doing this in the same spot in Cotton County, Oklahoma um, for now five generations. And I think there's a lot of, uh, of beauty and richness in that, that, um, I, I wanted to take part in, uh, in any way that I could. And so I've kind of thrown myself into it and really have enjoyed, uh, learning and have been the beneficiary of an extraordinary amount of patience and grace from my in-laws as I make mistakes and learn. Um, and also Casey's already mentioned that, that we do things a little bit differently with what we're doing. Um, but they've been so open, which is not the story of a lot of uh, commodity farmers who have younger generations kind of coming in. Um, I, I feel like I hear a lot of stories about younger people coming to the farm and them basically just having to wait uh, a few decades to be able to do what, what they would like to do or even experiment with it. And the Schurlers, Casey's family have been very open and like I said, forgiving and generous. Uh, with with how they've allowed us basically to um, to start doing some things in a little different way, and we're not a big operation. We can talk a little bit more later about what exactly we run livestock wise and the acreage and that kind of stuff. But that's some of our background. Is um, yeah. Well, that's a great um, a great setup for a lot of questions that I'm going to have. Um, and a couple of them are a little selfish, so I'll maybe start with one, and this is related to autoimmune disease. Um, it was December 19th. Um, I woke up and had pain in all of my joints in both hands, um, and I had been having a little more larger joint pain for maybe several months before that, but actually sort of just sort of ignored that because it was, um, I, I had started playing some very serious competitive tennis and, you know, I just thought I'm old and, you know, those are just what I'm going to run into. I, I threw out my right shoulder completely in college playing tennis and, and it's really never been the same. I've had to, well, um, but anyway, um, as it turns out, I, this, this was so weird. And I also started getting fevers, low grade fevers. And I could control them, fever with ibuprofen, but I don't like taking pills, don't like doing any of that. And I've just been so healthy that I scheduled an appointment with my primary care physician, did a bunch of blood work, and I ended up having factors that indicated autoimmune of some kind. She referred me to a rheumatologist and did more blood work, and I just had more done today. So this is all since, so it's just about two months. They don't know what I have yet, and it's something mm -hmm. autoimmune, 
And honestly, I'm treating it with a very low dosage, and we did go through some of this with corticosteroid, um, prednisone, and uh, I started with methylprednisone, which is stronger. Um, we have a, a ranch, and we use in our vet services a lot of corticosteroids at times or different things, so I understand what, what they're all about. So tell, tell us a little more about you, what you have, because uh, you said it's extremely rare. And, and yeah, what are well, what are, you, what are you doing other than eating better? Which, by the way, we, I've tried to begin to eat a lot better, although we actually eat pretty good anyway. We, we're able to produce everything we need other than coffee and sugar on our farm, and we don't need sugar. So, and my wife is the only one that needs coffee. I don't need that, but we can. We could be completely self-sustaining with everything else. Mm. Well, that's awesome. I, I am sorry to hear, though, about this pain you're experiencing, and I know how frustrating yeah. it can be, especially not to know, because it's hard to have a game plan until you actually know the root of what's going on. Um, but I will say, and maybe you've heard this sort of. This, there's a blanket statement out there that the root of all autoimmunity is due to leaky gut syndrome. And so actually the, the protocol that I follow is called the autoimmune protocol, which I would recommend looking into if you haven't already. It eliminates a lot of foods, a lot of seemingly healthy foods, um, but just for a limited time to see which foods might be causing an inflammatory reaction in your body. Um, I can talk more about that later, but... Um, my initial symptoms were tingling in my legs, so just a constant feeling like my legs were asleep, and I kept going to my primary care doctor who said, oh, I'm sure you have a pinched nerve, and I was thinking, you know, this really doesn't feel like a pinched nerve, and several weeks went by, and it progressively got worse, um, and I couldn't convince my doctor to run any tests or do any scans. Um, she just said, you know, go to a chiropractor and rest, and let's see what happens, and a few weeks later, I, I had woken up and had completely lost feeling in the lower half of my body. And so at that point, we went to the ER. They did some scans of my spine, and they found, um, what are they called? Three large lesions. Yeah, three lesions in my spinal cord, which initially looks a lot like multiple sclerosis. Um, and so that was my initial diagnosis was multiple sclerosis. Um, and I had started the process of doing treatment for that, but we got, thankfully we got plugged into Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota, and they have some of the best neurologists in the nation. Um, and that's where we found out I actually have a disease called MOG, um, M-O-G is the acronym. I couldn't tell you what it stands for, uh, but it, it reacts very similar to multiple sclerosis where it can attack your spinal cord, your optic nerve, your brain. Um, and I did steroids as well. Steroids have been a good friend to me. Uh, but thankfully, it's been almost, well, it's been, what, two and a half years since my initial attack. Since then, I've had one mild attack. And I don't take any long-term medications. I'm only following this protocol. And it's helped me immensely. I, I can't speak to it enough. By the way, and I, I don't have this doctor's name at the tip of my tongue, but my very, very best friend from youth, so from birth until 15, we lived just down the street from each other. We're always in each other's homes. Um, and he 
came down with something very similar to what your symptoms were or mine are about a year ago and couldn't get good help from his primary care and others. And he lives in Tulsa or outside Tulsa, so Oklahoma, and, um, and, and actually found a naturopathic couple there that I don't remember their names and I'll, offline I'll get them for you because down the road and, and leaky gut, I mean, that was the first thing that they got Kurt to do was to, to really work on his diet. And, uh, and it really did, I mean, he's just a different person. Um, hmm. It's really been awesome for him. So anyway, let's, let's leave that. That's a, that's a negative topic. By the way, everybody in the audience, and there's lots of you out there, put some questions in anytime. Because we're doing this sort of as an interview, I'll sort of um, be watching for them, Mark can watch for them, and we'll, uh, we'll ask them as you put them in. But uh, don't be shy. Put in some questions. Put in some where you're at in the world, too. Just throw that in the question box so we can kind of see where our audience is. So now let's go to the Oklahoma farming side and, and the multiple generations. So my mother was born in 2000, excuse me, 1916. And she was born on a homesteaded farm near Enid, Oklahoma. And her parents had come from Pennsylvania in 1909 in a wagon train to Oklahoma. And one of her sisters was actually born on that wagon journey from, from uh, Pennsylvania. And then my mom was born there. My mom had no running water, no electricity until she graduated from high school. Mm -hmm. and didn't feel underprivileged. And by the way, they went through the Great Depression on the farm there. Now, fast forward. My cousins, who are in their 60s, are now running that family farm and mm. additional lands that they have purchased around it. Not in a good way. Um, they are traditional monocropping, fence row to fence row, get the maximum yield you can get out of wheat and, and barley, and, and they have some livestock. Livestocks are more of a hobby to them than anything. They're grain farmers. Um, and I think they, they don't have to irrigate. I think they are in a place where they get enough moisture there that they're not irrigating, but just destroying the soil, just throwing, you know, ammonia on it in huge levels. Um, I've tried to get them to, to look at something different, and yet they're just comfortable. The reality is that they, you know, they take their product to the elevator, and they do that because that's what their dad did, and that's what their grandpa did before them. That's what their great-grandpa did before. They buy the, you know, they buy their chemicals from the the Monsanto dealer and the Cargill dealer and the, you know, whatever pioneer, because that's what granddad did. And that's what dad did. And, you know, that's what we're doing. And my second cousins, who are now in their 30s and 40s, 30s mainly, are now not going to come back. They're the first generation. They're probably most of them going to leave because they just can't stand what's going on. So, mm. Now you're going to have a multi-generation farm, and they're 
it, it, it can't become enid. It's not close enough. In other words, it, it, it's going to need to be some kind of, of, of uh, land-based activity. Uh, they're not going to sell this land to a developer. Uh, to yeah. So somehow they're going to have to sell to another fence row to fence row farmer. So it's so cool that that hasn't happened with your family. Um, so tell us how they've changed. We're now looking at your um, at your at your websites and pages and so on. Um, and how did they change? Because I'm guessing they were maybe a little bit more. Um, traditional farming for a few for some part of the generation. I may chime in here just because my I've spent so much time trying to glean any information that I can off of uh, Casey's dad and brother who run the, uh, their side of the family's operations here. So I, it's fresh in my mind. Um, in the 80s, uh, Stan, who's my father-in-law, Casey's dad, um, and his father switched to no-till, and they were some of the first farmers in the area to make that transition um, to no-till technology instead of a tilled program. So um, that was kind of their first step towards something that was a little bit different than traditional kind of scorched earth agriculture. Um, and they continue to use no-till to this day, uh, and they have crop rotations not much cover cropping, um, but they do rotate their crops uh, just to try and, and break up some of that soil compaction that they have. So that's, I mean, that's pretty much what uh, it's, they, they care about the soil and they care that they're doing a good job. They're still using herbicides, pesticides, everything that you have to basically are locked into doing if you're working on the commodity side, which I think a, an important part of this conversation is um, in regards to the traditional commodity farmer that many of us uh, kind of think of when we think of commodity farmer. Uh, these are people who really care about the land, um, but in order to cash flow, they're locked in with Monsanto, with Cargill, with you name whatever ag corporation, and the only real way to make a, a profit and a living off the land, if you want to stay out here and not sell to some to a developer or someone else, um, is to kind of follow the system that's in place. It takes a lot of it takes a lot to be able to break out of that. And so that's what we're where we've kind of started to to ask some questions. And I say ask some questions just because it we don't really know what the what the right way to do all this is and i i think there's so much knowledge um that's that's being lost when we skip over the opportunity to ask questions about why we do things uh instead of just assuming that there's a better way to do it which i'm a we're regenerative agriculture practitioners that's the way that we raise our cattle our pigs our chickens that's what we do with our farm um but i don't want to be so arrogant to think that i that somebody who doesn't do it that way might not know something, um, might know something that, that we don't. So they've been awesome just answering questions and, um, and really engaging in those conversations and being open to them. So that was a long way around the answer to your question, but no, I, there's, a, there's a true care for the land and, and for this area um, and for this community by 
this family. And that's, I think, why you see a fifth generation is because it's not just yields and and profit. It's a genuine care for being in this place and uh, supporting the community that's out here. So let's get into more detail about the livestock operation. You said this earlier, let's talk about number of animals, amount of land, how much you rotate them. I saw a quote from Joel Salatin, good friend, um, and um, if, if you ever want to connect with Joel, you're just the kind of people that he loves to spend time with, and he's really a lot more easy to get than you might think if, if it's through somebody that he knows. So I've never anybody I've never had anybody that I've recommended that he should interact with that he hasn't been willing to. Um, Dan Brown up in North Dakota, probably yeah. somebody that, that's doing things similar to what you might be looking at. Um, Will Harris at White Oak Pastures in Georgia, probably also. I got the extreme pleasure of spending five days with Joel and his family, and they mm -hmm. are now into it sixth generation um, in, in, on, their, on their farm. And, and again, Will, Will changed everything. Will, Will yeah. literally told his dad, I'm leaving. I'm out of here. Yeah. If, if, if you don't turn this over to me and let me run it the way that I think it should be run. And, um, and, and he did. And, and now he produces more pasture-raised eggs, I think, than anybody in the Northeast. And, uh, it's, uh, and they've, they've, they've literally changed towns that are around them because of what, by numbers of people that have gotten into the farm adventures. So um, I'm also real close with a guy that was one of the pioneers of no-till named William Tooley, or Bill Tooley in South Dakota. And he's not nearly as well known, and actually is farms at big scale. So he works with a lot of, you know, South Dakota, North Dakota, really probably should have been East Dakota and West Dakota because it's so different west of the Missouri and east of the Missouri. East of the Missouri is, is, is literally, um, you know, 30 to 50, 60 inches of rainfall a year. West is maybe as little as 20 and maybe even less. So everything west has got to be dealt with differently than, than east. Anyway, Bill started to get no-till into massive farmers. Um, and again, just like your um, like your parents have done, uh, Casey, they don't change everything, and not everything changes overnight. And, and Bill's just excited that they've gone to no-till, and maybe they are still using pesticides and herbicides and other things. That doesn't make them bad people. It doesn't mean they don't care about the property and about, about the soil. So I think it's great to hear that, that, that you feel the same way and that your, your parents and, are doing really good things. Let's talk about, again, and that's actually one of our very first questions, and there's more to it from our audience. But tell us about your livestock operation numbers, how you, how you manage them, and so on. Yeah. So we are a multi-species farm, um, and we we kind of operate on the fringes of what's available. And this is for those who are familiar with maybe some of those other farmers, Gabe Brown, Joel Salatin, uh, somebody like a Greg Judy. Um, one of the things that pops up often when um, they talk about how they would, if they could start over again, what they would do or what they recommend to people 
is the leasing of land that's available. And some of that's going to be scrub land. Some of it's going to be watershed that floods. And so when we first got started, um, we actually, <laughs> our first kind of foray into this was a couple longhorn cattle uh, because we knew that they had really lean beef and we needed to get lean beef for our diet. And so that was just kind of the start. We bought three longhorns and uh, the rest was history pretty much. Soon afterwards, we, and we moved them daily. We, uh, for those maybe not as familiar with what um, regenerative agriculture might mean for um, a cattle farmer per se, we, we really try and, and rotate our livestock as frequently as we can. Um, and for our larger cow herds, that's multiple times a week. For our animals that are going to the processor, um, especially during the springtime when there's heavy grass growth or fall when there's heavy grass growth, we're moving them once or twice a day. Um, and so we, we started with those longhorns. You can see on the screen there, our first cow uh, named Mrs. Weasley. Um, Casey, Casey was in charge of naming the animals. Uh, that, those were the last cows that we named though. <laughs> we quickly found out that was not the way to go. So we, we started out with those longhorn cows and then um, <laughs> took a dive and bought uh, 55 full-blood Aberdeen Angus cattle from somebody who was getting out of the business. And Aberdeen Angus cattle are, uh, are directly related to their traditional sized Angus cousins, um, but they're about 70% of the size. And that's really important when we're talking about the kind of business that we're in, which is your grass feeding and grass finishing. Um, having a smaller framed animal that's capable of maintaining its body condition um, with a less with less amount of food or the same amount of food and staying fat uh, on just grass is really important and it's something that's lost uh, when you move to a larger animal that you would find traditionally at a sale barn or uh, on on the rancher down the roads property and those cows can weigh upwards of 1400 pounds. And so maintaining body condition um, for a smaller animal was something that we thought was crucial to running this kind of regenerative operation. And so that's why we decided to go with the Aberdeen Angus. And we've been really pleased with them. So we lease, um, borrow, and use about 350 acres. And that's enough to support our uh, mama cow herd of 50. And then we have. Uh, we retain all of our calves. We sell some yearlings, some heifers, um, breeding stock to people. Uh, and then we also finish out our steers and heifers for uh, beef, grass-fed and finished. So that's the cow side. And then we have uh, two sows right now, Berkshire sows, and then a couple almost pet Cooney Cooney piglets that we started with, very similar to the Longhorns. Uh, when we first got started. So we have several, uh, oh goodness, there's a good picture right there. Uh, we have several different breeds of pigs on the farm. We really like Berkshires and that's the direction that we're kind of heading. Um, we've been really pleased with their meat. So we, we finish between 20 and 30 pigs a year. It's not a large operation. Um, and then we have chickens, laying hens. Um, again, not a ton, but we had about 100 this past year that were laying. So cattle is definitely our biggest operation, and part of that is just because we have access to 
grassland that is generally not used for about 75% of the year um, on the fringes of land that is cultivated in winter wheat for our in-laws. And then there's a couple grass pastures that we have access to all year round. Um, and we use electric fences to move our cattle through those pastures. Again, like I said, as frequently as we can uh, for anything that's headed to the butcher, it's once a day at least and twice a day in the growing season. Uh, for our cow herd, it's multiple times a week. Just trying to increase, bring back some of these native grass species, incre increase plant diversity, and then maybe most importantly, and, and Gabe Brown is really a pioneer of this, along with others, um, increase water infiltration into the soil. Um, this is a dry place uh, and increasing um, root mass and root structure that allows the plants to, to infiltrate uh, water into the ground and hold it for those dry spells really does make a difference. And we've been, I mean, it's clear to see our pastures versus the neighbor's pastures after a rain and maybe even more importantly, four or five months after a rain, um, stay green, which is a testament to, to some of these pioneers in the field kind of showing us what to do and and how functional it is for, for grazing management. By the way, a couple other names that if you'd like, we'll just make sure we introduce you to, but um, Joel Fallotton's son-in-law, so Jordan Green married Joel's daughter, and they're in Virginia, so they wouldn't have similar farming because of the rainfall and again, topography of their land and such, but started out just like you, uh, leasing land, um, doing whatever they could, really un trying to understand the land, um, optimize, you know, working their rear ends off. We haven't talked about that. I'm going to ask that question in a minute about how much you work because I, I know the answer without even asking. But um, so Jordan, Jordan's just amazing, and I, again, I got to help him actually video a course that he still hasn't put out yet he hasn't had the time for it yet but great guy um, and then again if you study us a little bit more you'll know that my partner for two years was mark shepherd and so mark has done hundreds of hours with us and, mm -hmm. and again lives in a different ecosystem than you more wet and, and so but that leads me to a question have you done anything to contour your land, to sculpt your land if you could, even though it probably looks to people from the outside as being dead flat, nothing's dead flat, to where you can actually keep more of your water on your land. Have you done any of those measures? No, so we have not done, um, we have not done any sculpting of land. Um, I'm really interested in key line, uh, and this is something that Mark talks about a lot, Mark Shepard uh, and other, I mean, this is, it's kind of above my pay grade just getting into this at this point, but it's something that we're really interested in. Um, as a startup, we have not really been able to, uh, and frankly, the longevity of our business, how long it might last was in question to just about everybody, including us when we first started, especially the people that we lease land from. So the idea of asking them to sculpt it or uh, even paying for it ourselves has kind of been out of the, out of the equation so far. 
um, something like a key line plow that would allow me to, to follow contour lines um, is really interesting to me just because I would be able to do that without necessarily building swales or ridges. Um, and it's something that you just need a tractor and a, a good subsoiler um, to do. So that's something that's on the horizon for us uh, just because of the water retention aspect and, and how much that can improve um, the water retention on your farm would be a key line plow, uh, but it's not something that we have done yet. That's a so a question that Luciana had, and you've answered a bunch of hers, but do you use any vaccines or antibiotics, and do you supplement your feed at all? So we are 100% we are grass-fed. Um, we do not supplement feed other than our steers get a little bit of non-GMO Timothy pellet. And that is a non-GMO pellet. Um, they do not get any grain ever. Not, none of our cows ever get any grain. The only thing that receives a supplement are those finishing steers, kind of those last 30 days. That little, that little shot of extra Timothy grass protein, higher protein content, especially when it's really dry here. Um, the summer stretch from June to August is just brutal. And trying to finish something and, and keep condition on an animal is, is difficult. So we do supplement a little bit. And we're talking about like a couple pounds a day. Not a, they're not sitting in a feed yard. Um, they're grazing out on pasture and they get a little bit extra supplement. Um, our cows get hay, non-sprayed, no herbicides, pesticides, not fertilized. Um, and we buy that from, from Casey's dad who just understands what we need out of that hay. So they do get hay at certain times of the year, like this blizzard that just rolled in. They've got five hay bales out there right now because they can't graze. Um, but that is non-sprayed, non-fertilized hay. And then uh, on the vaccine front, we do vaccinate. Um, I think some kind of vaccination program is important just as a, uh, a risk management for somebody who owns 50 plus cows and depends on that for some income. Um, we do not use any antibiotics. So for our cattle, we use a, a black leg vaccine um, and something called Bovishield Gold, which you'd be well, Covexin 8 and Bovishield Gold are what we use. And that's more detail probably than anybody actually wanted to know. But uh, we don't use any antibiotics. Um, we banned calves, young steer calves uh, at one year old and, and use those two vaccinations just to make sure that that we're not losing animals unnecessarily. Uh, if we do, we've had to administer antibiotics one time in our entire farming history, and that's really, I think, lucky so far. Uh, those animals are removed from our program entirely, um, and they go into the they go to the sale barn if they're cattle uh, or pigs. We haven't had to do it with pigs yet, but those animals do not end up uh, remaining with our herds or being passed on to our, our customers. Those are completely removed. So hopefully that answers that question. Yeah, it does. No, it's awesome. Um, Anthony, I'm going to get your question asked, so be patient, because I want to ask a couple more that will be great lead-ins to it. I already referred to one. How hard do you guys work? Uh, there How are seasons. There are, and I think, uh, being in kind of startup mode still, it's a lot. Um, I think 
Casey and I have had this discussion. I think something that's kind of missed in this whole regenerative agriculture movement is holistic health for the farmer and making sure that you're not just killing yourself. Uh, there was a stretch there for six to eight months where we both worked full time off farm. We had flexible jobs. We work for a nonprofit in Uganda called Kibo Group. So we have very flexible jobs. It's not like it requires us to be in office from eight to five, but it does require our attention during the day. And so early mornings, lunchtime, late at night, and all weekends are basically entirely devoted to getting this thing up and running. Um, so it's a lot of work. It's any time that we're not working on our day jobs is the best answer I can give you. Uh, it's a lot. It's this is not a this is not a, like a one hour a day thing. <laughs> it's not a part time side hustle. It's a it's a every hour you can spare type of deal. And part of that's just because of the phase of this business that we're in. Um, and part of it's just because farming is difficult. It's labor intensive. Do you, especially the do you think you'll look at as you look ahead, do you think you'll ever reach a point where the farming you're doing can be your primary income to where you don't have to have um, off off farm jobs? Uh, Yes and yes and no. I really love what I do for the organization that we both work for. Casey does too. Um, and so there's a part of me that uh, always wants to have some involvement. I grew up in Uganda and have roots there and, and want to help. So I'd always love to be involved there in some way. And the nice thing about farming is uh, if you can set up systems, part of this is just systems engineering and systems design, which is fascinating to me. Uh, designing systems that regenerate themselves and that require less and less effort uh, the more that you kind of refine the processes that it takes to do them. Like moving cattle at first for us required two energizers front and back, a lane to water. Um, we didn't have any infrastructure set up. That's a lot of work and anybody that moves cattle will tell you that that's a lot of work. Now we've got a system set up where what we do is uh, we have lanes already set up to water, and we just put a riser on the uh, electric fence line and cattle go under it into that pasture, and it's a quarter of the amount of time. Um, so yeah, I envision a time where this is our primary income, um, and I think it's possible. I think we're probably realistically, because we don't work at it full time, still probably two to three years away from it being something that we could rely on as a replacement for our current income. Um, but that's kind of the direction that, that we're headed. And hopefully we would then be able to use the time that we do have from labor saving systems designs uh, to continue to do things that we love off the farm, like work for the organization that we work for. Yeah, yeah. Very cool. Um, I'm going to ask that uh, Anthony's question now, and um, he says it's for you, Zach, but it's, but it's mainly because you're the guy that didn't grow up on the farm. Um, what was the hardest thing to learn or adjust to in farming, having not been raised in that environment? Yeah, everything. <laughs> uh, I think the thing that has blown me away is 
how much there is to learn really is I know that's Anthony probably not a great way to answer that question but to be a successful farmer especially a successful farmer who cares about the soil and cares about the animals and cares about the product that we're producing um, you have to be you have to know your soil you have to know your grass you have to know your animals um, you have to know how to market there are so many skills that are required to do this correctly uh, it, it really surprised me I mean as somebody who did not grow up around agriculture um, unfortunately the stigma that I had or the picture in my head that I had of a farmer was just sitting on a tractor kind of plowing a field or dropping a hay bale off in a field and it's so much more than that so the hardest thing for me to really wrap my head around in the beginning was just the the attention to detail that this kind of farming requires you can leave your cattle in a pasture for 12 hours too long and you'll feel it for the next 24 months uh, you can leave them in there two hours too short and the next time you come through it'll you'll feel it and so the attention to detail uh, for all of these little things has been it's been difficult and challenging uh, and it's required mistakes to be made in order to to really learn um, but also very rewarding uh, all of it so that's the hardest thing really has just been you kind of have to be a jack of all trades and I'm it takes a lot of work are there uh, this is a little bit more personal but got to be coming up at some point are there kids on the horizon and uh, think, thinking about it and you know, have you thought about how they get involved if, if that's part of the plan Casey you should <laughs> take that one we we are actually <laughs> we're actually in the process of setting up our home to be foster parents at some point oh, um, really cool. in the maybe near future I think kids are also on the horizon. Part of the issue, aside from us having a lot going on, is that I'm in the middle of getting a PhD and trying to figure out how kids and being in school, along with all of the other things we have going on, seems like a big challenge. But we would look forward to that. I think, you know, raising kids here seems very idyllic. I mean, I, I grew up in this environment and I personally didn't appreciate it all that much at the time, but now looking back, I can see how truly unique and rewarding it is. Um, and so getting to involve kids in this process, having them know the land, having them know where their food comes from rather than you know the grocery store. Um, that to me seems really like an awesome opportunity for us that hopefully isn't too far into the future. Couple comments, and then I want you to comment on what I say related to it. Three of three, actually. Um, one, if you've ever heard of what Mark Shepard says, the ultimate circumstance for a regenerative farming ought to be, which is STUN. So you, you know, have you heard him use that acronym? Strategic Stun. and total utter neglect. Yeah. Now, actually. It can either be strategic and total or strikingly terrific. Out of the world. <laughs> I like strikingly terrific more. Yeah, and I think that's what he really would, would like to have you believe more today. Um, and I'm going to tell you how 
I do that with one element of my ranch. Uh, I I have one element of my ranch that absolutely is has been handled for 10 years with strikingly terrific utter neglect. And, and that's going to lead to a question for you. Um, the, the next comment was um, related to marketing. And, you know, you mentioned that. Did you guys have that skill set? And I'm sure, you know, you're, you're having to, to be creative in the way that you market. So tell us a little bit about marketing and sales. Um, what, what are you doing in that area? Well, yeah, I mean, my, my background is in marketing, um, and Zach is naturally gifted at it as well. So that hasn't been too big of a challenge for us. I think what we really try to prioritize in our marketing is authenticity. Um, so you'll notice on our Instagram page, for example, that we're not so much marketing our end product because that's just we see that as one small aspect of what we're doing. Um, and it's a very small part of our day to day live here. Um, and that's what we're more inclined to tell our audience about what we're doing on a day to day basis, how our practices are different. Um, we also want to reach our audience on multiple levels. You know, we have people who are really passionate about a healthy product for themselves or their family. We have people who are really passionate about the planet and want to know that they're consuming food that is not only sustainable for the environment, but helps regenerate it and, you know, sequester carbon from the atmosphere. And then we have people who are sort of interested in this, you know, trend of sustainable living. And so we want to be able to reach all of these people. And so a lot of our posts have more educational components to them. So we try to condense all of this work that we're doing into digestible bits and pieces for people to hopefully get a better understanding of what it means to be a regenerative farmer so that they can hopefully in turn share that with others. Um, and that's that's worked really well for us. I think that makes us a little bit unique um, in this field. It's it's not the angle that everyone takes, um, but it's it's worked well for us. And we also try to just be transparent about the good things and the hard things about what's going on. So you'll see that a lot of our captions are longer. That's that's not everyone's cup of tea, but I, I feel like our target audience, they really enjoy hearing the ins and outs of what's happening here at the farm. So we try to share that as much as possible. Cool. So I said that that I would talk about a couple other things. And one of them I mentioned that I one of the things I do strikingly terrific utter neglect. So it starts with a question. What do you have for water? Um, so permanent water, ponds, slash creeks, slash, you know, on the on the property. What, what do you have there? Well, we have stock tanks, ponds. Um, People call them by different names. I grew up calling them ponds, and so that's generally the, the term that I use. Um, we have access on every field that we run cattle on to ponds. And so I fence off those ponds so that our cattle cannot get into them, urinate, defecate, hang out, swim, cool off. Um, and I think that was one of the most important things that we did right off the bat to, to make sure if you're using a pond, um, you got to kind of watch the quality of the water because it really can deteriorate and water quality for cattle is a, a big deal. Um, so we do use livestock ponds and we use lanes back to those ponds um, and just try and fence off around so that we can build up uh, root structure around the pond dam. Hopefully we get some shade trees um, and we've been lucky in that that's 
what we have access to. I will pipe water. Pardon? Keep going. I will pipe water to some finishing steers. Um, okay. If I'm not if I'm not happy with how the pond looks or it's super hot and I want them to get something else, but that's for 12 head at a time. Um, and I I don't know. I've gone back and forth. There's a lot of people who uh, who like to have water in every paddock. Um, that gets expensive pretty quickly. And I I think if you do ponds right. It can be done right, and it takes so much less time, effort, expense. Uh, when you talk about stun, the first thing that comes to mind is the Tom Lasseter philosophy of cattle raising, uh, mob breeding, and the efficiency of your cattle being the most important. That's something that we're we've been big on um, in our kind of breeding program as well. Is just making sure that we're we're heading towards a more efficient uh, cow. Uh, that doesn't require special attention, uh, that can be left to its own devices. As long as we set up systems that make sure that they have the right amount of feed, that they have mineral. I mean, we're not neglecting our cattle. I want to be clear on that. But we are expecting them to work. Um, There are employees at the end of the day, and our job as managers of those employees is to equip them um, to excel in their positions, which are grass-eating machines uh, and so as long as we're doing that our our goal is really to try and leave everything that we can to them uh, so hopefully that's uh, feel free to I tend to go on for a while so if I if I ever just keep going longer than you want no, me to just interrupt me and, and tell me that you need to change no gears. no you're good I, I'm going to give you a little thought now just something yeah. to think about put in the back of your head um I bought a piece of property 15 years ago that everybody else had said prior to me having it, there was no water on it. It, it, uh, um, it was basically an, a drained um, tributary to a year-round river that's about three miles away. And over the years, it had been horribly overgrazed. And my background, what I know um, like what Mark Shepard knows in, in forest ecology and Dan Brown knows in rangeland ecology. I know water. And I know where water is. And it isn't through witching, although I do witch, but just by looking at the land and looking at its history. Bottom line is there was water in the stream. It just had gone underground to escape all those cattle that were grazing the crap out of the land all around it. So I opened up springs got the water to come back and start to flow as a stream again. I rested the land for two years, a little bit of patience, and then I built 22 ponds on that stream system that's about a mile long. And the largest of which is two acres, the smallest of which is a backyard swimming pool. All of those ponds have their own ecosystem, and community for aquatic organisms, including cattails. We manage four cattails in specific ponds. We manage four duckweed in specific ponds. We manage four watercress in, in certain specific areas. And then we manage for large, smallmouth bass in that big pond, the two-acre pond. We have about 11,000 of them in it at any given time. Mm. And we manage for ornamentals in 
one of our most upper ponds, which is the one that's not much bigger than a backyard swimming pool, maybe maybe twice as big. I manage those by stun, <laughs> strikingly terrific, utter neglect. Now, I don't have the fears that you do because I can grow fish in my sleep. It's what I've done for my whole life, a little bit like your dad probably, um, Casey, in the way that he feels like what he's done, my cousin in, in, in Oklahoma. But um, I, so we, these fish don't get fed. It's all natural. Get the environment. We manage the land around it intelligently, and um, and we have control of it, which is important also. And then once a year, we electroshock that that big pond, and we have chefs and caterers come on site, and we have a party, and we have a lottery, and they all pick numbers, and we electroshock. We get the fish that we want to harvest anyway. We we, tr we mark the others so that we can know how many fish we have. We let the little ones go. We let the big ones go. And we harvest those that are from half pound to three pounds in size, typically. We make $20,000 in that one day for something that's completely stunned. We don't do any other management other than have fun. This gets back to the holistic side of things. We fish on those ponds, that, and we train dogs on them. That happens in my avocation. So the ponds are made so that they can be used for dog training. And um, anyway, the upper ponds, we do the exact same things, but with pet stores rather than with chefs. And we do one day when we electroshock, and we have basically fancy goldfish. They call them koi. And they range in size from two inches to six inches, and we have some that are who are a foot long, but we don't let them get those. And we sell those for half of what they buy them from their typical wholesalers, and we make 15000 12 to 15000 on that one day of doing that. Those are two fun days. Here's my point. Start thinking about your ponds more. If you're not making use of them, if they can be way more than just water for your livestock, because you're already managing them. You're already doing something with them. And with your marketing background and your thoughts, you've got a resource in your pond that is an additional form of revenue for you that could become stunned, quite honestly, if you, if you manage it right. Um, lastly, be creative about livestock types. So again, if you've studied us or Mark's mentioned to you, you he told you what we have as sort of our primary form of livestock. No, it doesn't look like it. Alpacas. Alpacas, yeah. And for every use you could imagine, we had as many as 350 at one point. That was too many. We had lanes and ways that the dogs, we have one herding dog that can move them back and forth between all their paddocks. And we we live in, you know, very uh, rocky, <laughs> very low, 13 inches a year rainfall. And we would move them all over. We, we hay them in the winter because we don't have grass that's available. But we buy that hay just like you do from organic sources. And we produce an amazing lean meat. That's probably our primary source of income from those alpacas. It, it hasn't always been that way. Um, we've also, we also make um, compost manure from it that we get farmers begging us. We never have enough of it to sell. Again, are they native here? No. But they're native in an area that's a lot like this. Probably not as much where you guys are at, but 
but not crazy either. We have some, like I said, we have really good friends that are alpaca farmers all over North Texas, Oklahoma, um, into Kansas, and so on. So just, just a couple seeds for thought. Um, so anybody else with questions? Anthony asked another one here. This is a really good one. Um, Anthony says, as an entrepreneur, I'm always curious about what tools or businesses are needed to better serve farmers. Zach mentions all the things that go into farming and the farmers need to be a jack of all trades. What is missing in the market that would help you with your operations? If there's one thing you could think of. Great question, Anthony. Great question. I think the answer that comes to my mind, and I'd be interested, Wayne, to hear your thought on that as well. But the one thing that kind of pops to mind right now, considering this past year, is processors. Um, yeah. We got wow. We got really, yeah. we got really lucky in that I I schedule out our all our processing dates a year in advance. So we had all of our processing dates, and we even ended up having some extras this year. Um, so it didn't affect us, but I know other people who, I mean, were just scrambling to get a date or two whose whose incomes were more dependent on it than ours were, frankly. And it was, it was craziness. So I think that's a great question, Anthony. Uh, and I, there's probably more answers than that, but that's the first thing that comes to mind. And just so everybody understands, he means what, um, and do you, do you do slaughter yourself or do you just take your animals and everything's done at the processor? Everything that we have, yeah, sorry, I should explain that. So in order for us to sell across state lines, which we sell in Oklahoma and Texas or online, uh, we have to use a USDA federally inspected uh, meat processor. So that's somebody who would butcher our animals and then process them, which is the process of cutting up for different cuts. Uh, if you want steaks or roasts or ground. Um, so, so we use federally inspected processors for all of our animals that we sell. We did on on-farm processing for chickens um, and would do it for chickens again just because we don't do that many uh, but for all of our beef and pork we use a federal inspected processor and the dates i just i had a call at the beginning of this year booking out our 2021 and even the 2022 dates so right. that's the one thing that i think is missing for small farmers um, and those guys are going out of business very quickly the average age of a of a guy who owns one of those kinds of facilities that is small scale is in his 60s or 70s, and again, it, it's that's sad, but you're right. That's going to become a real issue. By the way, if you haven't, it's a ways from you. There's a processor in Alma. Um, I don't know how far north if you ever get to a place where that's an issue. That it can't be that far from you, but that you could use. Um, great question, Anthony, and I think that's a, that's a great answer from them. We're just about at the top of the hour. Anybody else, put your fingers to work and, and, and type some questions. What, what would you like to end with? Um, give a, give a, a summary of what you'd like everybody to take away from what, what you've been able, able to tell us today. And, and maybe um, how do they contact you? If I'm sure you wouldn't mind selling um, some, of that amazing, uh, uh, some of that amazing meat that you have if, if somebody was willing to buy. Yeah, so our website, um, I think Mark is scrolling through it right now on the screen share, is uh, refarm.market, www.refarm.market. So you're always welcome to hop on there and see what we're up to. Casey does all of our social media, and she does a great job updating uh, 
our Instagram. We're not on Facebook a whole lot. We do posts, but uh, we're on Instagram probably more than anything. So re.farm for Instagram, uh, refarm.market for uh, our website. Um, and we're always happy to chat. I mean, I feel like, I hope this has come across. We don't know what we're doing. Uh, we're trying and we're working very hard at it, but I feel like kind of the, the forever trial of farming is that you can never really master this thing. You can just adapt to what, what the land throws at you and what your animals throw at you. And hopefully you adapt well enough to succeed. Um, and so I, I hope that's come across and I hope that for those of you who are listening, we've, uh, you can hear that from us that we're we're attempting this and and we're proud of what we're producing. We're really proud of it because we think it's unique and and a product that's unavailable in other places, especially around here. So we'd love to talk more and and frankly uh, learn from some of you who may end up watching this. Uh, if you have tips for us or things that you think we should be doing or considering, we're all ears. I. I... I can feel that they're sincere about that. And um, we're certainly going to try to help you here from the eat community as much as we can. And, and um, I'm never afraid to give people suggestions. It's, it's either a strength or a weakness in my character. Some people see it as a weakness. Some people see it as a strength. Um, and, you know, we, we would love to be able to do that as much as we can. I didn't see any other questions yet. Um, there was one actually that I didn't ask directly, but Luciana had said, what is your market and how do you reach it? And you answered that. And that's why I didn't ask it very specifically the way she had. But I think you've gotten to all the rest. Mark, thank you for helping get everything going here. It's awesome to get to know you guys. Um, again, here I'll tell you another one. Um, look at using your land um, for things like field trials for dogs. You'd be shocked at how much people might pay you for something like that. And, and it's not just that. Maybe, maybe you have an adventure race that, that you could run and just, you don't need to do anything with it. You go find a promoter that would love to have some land to do something like that. So just, that's a little hint of something that you might be able to do also. Um, I think it's very clear that pre-industrial revolution, where we still had a lot of people to feed in this country, that most farmers didn't ever just rely on what they took off the land. They had to do multiple other things. And, um, and my mom, I mean, it wasn't just pre-industrial revolution. Uh, my mom, you know, learned to, do, learned to type when she was in high school and started doing part-time work as a typist, you know, while, She's living on the farm and doing all the work she, she had to do. And my cousins that, again, have stayed as more traditional type farmers, but they don't make all their income off of their farm. And I don't think that most of the very big, you know, monocrop guys do at all anyway. So let's see if we can take to scale the kinds of things that you're doing that are so cool and right, and then realize maybe you're going to always have to make some on the farm, but maybe doing other things other than what people would consider to be farming. I know that's Joel Salatin's attitude. Um, and, and, it, and it's certainly Mark Shepard's also. Um, I think Dan Brown and Will Harris 
they look more, you know, those guys are making pretty much their families' revenues from their farms. Um, Alan Savory and the kinds of things that he talks about, but, but that's rare. Greg Judy certainly doesn't with the, with the things that he does. So anyway, yeah, it's got- been awesome. Thank you, everybody. The rest of you have a great night. Thank you for having us. Hey, everybody. I bet you enjoyed that immensely. That was one of our most amazing presentations here at the EAT community. Please look forward to our next podcast in the very near future, and we look forward to seeing you again on the EAT Community Podcast.